0: Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. As the appropriate omnivore, advocate not only for organic agriculture, but also for regenerative agriculture, meaning healthy soil and carbon, put back into the ground to reverse climate change. Here to talk with me about regenerative agriculture and soil science is Seth Itzkin, an environmental futurist who co-founded the organization Soil for Climate. Seth, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Aaron. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here.
1: It's great to have you here, too. I know you've been rather busy lately, having gone to the... Copt Summit, and I appreciate that you can take the time to appear on this program.
0: Uh, it's my pleasure. Happy to do
1: it. So, how did you first get involved with soil science and regenerative agriculture?
0: All right. So, the history is that I was and still am a climate activist. So that's really where it all came from, being a climate activist, and it started to become clear to me and to the climate community, you know, around 2010, that we were past the point where just fighting the emissions battle was gonna be good enough. And we had to start to sequester atmospheric carbon. And so the movement of soil and sink for atmospheric carbon and the whole drawdown movement. And, you know, that, that's how it started. And that's where my interest came from. It, it came from being a climate activist. And what's interesting is that because of that, I'm now into soil. And now because of that, I'm into sort of the food issue and the agriculture issue. And those are the main issues now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of a little bit backward how I got there. You know, I got there just from being a climate activist and just being aware of the fact that there's too much carbon in the air already. And even if our emissions went to zero, like if tomorrow, literally everything stopped, not another gram of CO2 was emitted from humans, it's already way too late. Uh, yes. And so the whole nerd is, oh, we're trying to limit it to 1.5 or two by a certain date. That's all still profoundly incomplete. We need to be talking about sequestering Hundreds of billions of tons of carbon in the coming decade. And then the question is, where's it gonna go? And the answer is in the soil. And then the question is, well, how's it gonna get in the soil? And the answer is regenerative agriculture. And it turns out the largest, most sequestering part of regenerative agriculture is gonna be regenerative grazing and ecological restoration. And it turns out that most of the practitioners in that space don't even care about climate. The issues are more basic. It's food, food security, water security, Prevention of desertification, ecological justice and and stability for small producers. Those are the issues that they're dealing with, not quote unquote measuring soil carbon or even climate change, which is considered sort of a first world issue. And so now here I am being an advocate for pastoral in Kenya. I you know so. It's sort of interesting the way this whole thing has evolved, but that's sort of the long and short of it is that how this all came about.
1: It is interesting indeed, and it's similar for me. I got into all of this being interested in the environment and about reversing climate change, doing my part. So that was then what led me to learning about agriculture and specifically regenerative agriculture, more so than say, I know a lot of people get into movement of regenerative agriculture kind of more through being concerned about health and learning about healthy meats. But yeah, with me, same thing, got into it being an environmentalist first. And that was what then led to founding the Appropriate Omnivore blog and podcast. So how did Soil for Climate come into being founded?
0: Well, my colleague, Carl Tiedemann and I had been friends and colleagues for a long time. And we were taking a, a class at Harvard Extension School, actually you know, on climate change is probably around God, I don't I don't even two thousand and eight or something. And sort of before two thousand and ten, a few years or so before two thousand and ten. And yeah, actually it had to be two thousand and nine because we were exposed to a paper which had just come out by Professor Susan Solomon at MIT. And the title of the paper was Irreversible Climate Change Due to Carbon Dioxide Emission. And she was the one who really brought this issue of irreversible climate change already down to the nine. She was already showing that we were you know, way past tipping point. And I'm giving a little more background as to answer the first question, but this is where the gestalt, if you will, for the forming of soil from came from, just the awareness that we were already past the point where the normal vector of the climate movement was going to be good enough. And I'd been on that, I don't know, for decades. I mean, as long as people have been aware of climate as a problem, I mean, really in the late 1980s is when it started to show up and I'm old enough to remember that. And I sort of felt as if the climate state movement was in good hands, more or less, that is the 350.org organization that Bill McKibben started was a robust organization you know, by 2000 and whatever, and that it was in good hand. But the narrative for drawdown that we need to be taking carbon out of the air wasn't really developed yet, you know, or not in the sort of activist front. So Carl and I started it for that reason. Wow. And we had been aware of Alan Savory and his work. And I went to Zimbabwe to visit with Alan Savory for six weeks in 2011. And so I was really, you know, embedded there in the organization. And, you know, I was volunteering at sort of like an academic level. I was, you know, mathematics and had a GPS device and was walking with the grazers and really bringing a little more of a sort of a techie element to what they were doing there. And then when I came back, so Tufts University is where I went to college, and Carl and I were friends with a Tufts professor named William Bouma, and in fact, he was the one giving the Harvard Extension class. And we told him about Alan Savory, and he invited Alan to come speak at Tufts. This was around 2013, I think, something like that. And Alan did, and he packed the auditorium and got a standing ovation, literally a standing ovation. And
1: this was before his TED Talk. Oh, wow.
0: You know, that's now been Mm -hmm. seen by about 14
1: million people or something like that. Right. It's one of the most watched TED Talks. Well,
0: I'd like to believe that. I mean, the YouTube has like around 14 million, I think. And the TED has around seven. I'd like to believe it's one of the most watched. I mean, those are great numbers, but you know, you've got talks that have 70, million views. Anyway, whatever. It certainly got a lot, <laughs> you know, and it, we just kind of want to keep the narrative moving. And there's all different fronts to it now. One of the fronts is in, on the legislative side. There's something called healthy soils legislation. It's just sort of a generic term, but there's sort of a movement now called healthy soils legislative movement or healthy soils. And so there's various bills moving forward and and some of them look at, you know, soil carbon or look at methods to help practitioners improve their soil health. You know, that's sort of at the state level, at the federal level. It's obviously very tough, but that the farm bill, which of course subsidizes all the wrong behavior. Yeah. You know, and so it's hard to make progress there but that's one of the fronts and then at the international level well you've got COP got the climate conference you've got a wide range of international NGOs and you have organizations now like four per thousand and you know and now there are various other groups you know there's Regeneration International there's the Carbon Underground there's Regeneration Canada there's Kiss the Ground and they made a movie which is great so you know we have sister organizations in the world and missions, you know, really overlap very significantly. And we're colleagues and we do things together. It's sort of like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, you know, and Cream. To <laughs> <laughs> give a 60s rock reference.
1: Yes, the missions cover many of the different aspects of regenerative agriculture. So among the many different aspects, this show is called The Appropriate Omnivore. And we're going to jump right into the meaty aspects. How important is livestock to regenerative agriculture? All right. Well, I mean,
0: I'm glad you asked. It turns out it's probably the most important thing. And that's because most of what we call soil in this context is we're referring to agricultural soil or grazing land soil. For the most part, that's what we're referring to. And all soil like that pretty much evolved or co-evolved with grazing Animals, and particularly in the science, we refer to them as the megafauna, or and specifically ruminant, or ruminant ungulate is even the sort of the more technical term. And that's really where soil came from. What we call "quote unquote" soil in that context, you think about the Midwest and North Africa, South Africa, East Africa, Central. Asia, most of India, you know, what we refer to as soil in this context is really sort of a recent evolutionary phenomenon over the last 30 million years. It co-evolved with the ruminant ungulates. So those animals and the notion of sort of a grassland of these grasses, these perennial grasses and the soil itself, they're all sort of one thing that all co-evolved in about the last 30 million years. And part of coupled with that co-evolution was a profound drawdown of atmospheric carbon. I mean, 40 million years ago or so, atmospheric carbon was over 1,000 parts per million with carbon dioxide, you know, in the range. They don't know exactly, you know, paleoclimatology is difficult, but in the range of 1,000, 1,200 parts per million. And, you know, now we're in a crisis because we're over 400, we're even over 300, Really is a crisis. We should be around 272. So it really was the evolution of ruminants and grasslands that made our current atmosphere, our climatic paradigm, if you will, possible in the first place. That's why there were great plains. That's why humanity was able to evolve. You know, 40 million years ago, it was basically a hot, wet, entirely forested planet. There weren't grasslands, and there was no way in which sort of a plains-adapted creature could evolve. So getting back to the question as to why livestock are important for generative agriculture and for climate mitigation is because they're the proxy for these great herds of animals that created the grasslands and sequestered the carbon in the first place. That's what they are. They're the proxy. And then they also happen to be a proxy that produces protein for humans to eat. But you see, here's another point to also get across to the listeners. And if there really was sort of one takeaway, it needs to be this. We need to be doing regenerative grazing anyway, even if we didn't need protein. Mm-hmm. Even if God or Bezos or Bill Gates <laughs> said, oh, uh, don't worry about eating, you know, just don't worry about it. You don't need to eat anymore. We got cover it covered. But we still need to deal with catastrophic climate change. We still need to prevent most cities of the world from being completely underwater within a few decades. We still need to deal with that, but don't worry about food. We would still have to restore all of these grasslands and use grazing animals to do it. We have to do this anyway, even if we didn't have to eat. And you see, that gets back to being the quote-unquote climate activist. That's the number one mission for a climate activist in the draw, on the drawdown side of it, to make that drawdown possible. And livestock have to be managed as proxies of these great herds, which created grasslands, which sequestered, you know, in the range of 800 billion tons, I mean, 800 parts per million of CO2 in the first place. So that's why it is fundamental. Why it, the, the short response is that livestock are absolutely fundamental to the regenerative agriculture movement and to the drawdown side of the climate movement.
1: Do you think that not enough attention has been given to how important livestock are in the regenerative agriculture and soil science?
0: I think in terms of regenerative agriculture, the people who are actually in that space understand the necessity of livestock. And so I would say, yes, in that space, I do think it has been given appropriate attention in the climate space, however, not at all. And in fact, you know, completely the opposite. <laughs> yeah. We're still living in a dominant narrative, which is condemning animal and the livestock industry. And look, there's plenty about the livestock industry, which is deleterious and absolutely needs to be rectified and called out. But most of what's deleterious about it is the grain agriculture component. And that's the part that has to stop anyway. And this is the part that, you know, the vegans and the vegetarians don't get. We're not going to be eating soy burgers in the future because we're not going to be growing soy. It's not going to happen. All that area has to be restored to grassland, and ruminants are what needs to do it. And what I think is interesting is this idea that. And some in the livestock industry might find this a tough pill to swallow. And it's sort of ironic as well, because in the sort of more veggie side where they say, okay, well, less red meat. It's more, you know, white meat. It's really the other way around. There's going to be more red meat and less chicken and pig. Because chicken and pig are the monogastric creatures that need the grain in industrial sense. Mm -hmm. Cows don't. I mean, yes, they're. Finished on grain, right. but they're just finished on it. That is just a modern creation to expedite the feeding process, the getting to weight process. But it actually isn't necessary, of course. They can be finished on grass, and right. the whole grass fed movement is what I'm promoting. Me too. So the weird irony here is that red meat actually is the most regenerative form of protein, yep. not white meat or pink meat unless it is pasture-raised chicken and pig. But you know that nuance is often sort of missed in this discussion. So take a state like Iowa, for example, okay? Most of the corn and soy that's grown there goes to support the pig and chicken industries there, which are all, for the most part, the modern industrial and deleterious model. So you say, okay, well, we need to get away with that. Well, we do, but then What's going to happen to all those soy and fields, right? Well, if they're going to get restored back to tall grass Prairie, which Iowa needs to be, well, how's that going to happen? Well, that has to happen with grazing. And it turns out you're going to need a lot more cows in Iowa. So the actual cow population in Iowa is maybe a third or quarter of what it should be. So even though the chicken and pig operations may be reduced significantly and will probably need to be reduced significantly, the, the grazing and the cattle operation will increase. And so the actual sort of animal biomass or protein that's produced, I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers, but it may stay the same. It will just change in terms of its constitution. Now, obviously, if grazing were the most lucrative model, it probably never would have moved to chicken and pig. So the economics of this do need to change. We need to start rewarding people for restoring soil carbon. So now when there's a price on soil carbon and that's one of the legislative efforts, then all of a sudden now you increase the incentive for people not to be in chicken and pigs, being fed grain, but being
1: in regenerative grazing. You see? I do. You see how that works? Mm-hmm. I think it's like the saying goes, it's not the cow, it's the how.
0: Right. But part of the <laughs> part of the how It's got to be a price on soil carbon. And then the healthy soil legislation is trying to incorporate that. But, you know, there'll be other indicators, plant life, diversity, water infiltration, ground cover. But somehow this ecological service that restoration grazing provides has to be monetized. One of the approaches on that is to work with the insurance industry and say, look at the costs associated with flood insurance with a drought insurance look at what's happening to the midwest to the cities along the mississippi river look at the dead zone in the gulf of mexico the fishing industries there these are all the associated costs of cheap meat whether it's chicken pigs or cows or then all the oils all the that come from this and all the starchy breads that we eat all of that are the actual costs of food. And if you actually paid what the real price is for a (laughs) Pop-Tart, it'd be $100. So we need to think, okay, what's really important? We have to have these healthy ecosystems and we need to eat healthy food. And pasture-raised meats are the most healthy food. It's funny that you hear people saying cutting out meat. No, why don't you cut out the Pop-Tarts and the Cheerios and the Donuts And the brownies and the bun. It's interesting being in Europe because for the first time in my life, when I ordered a burger, the bun was an option.
1: I've heard that about Europe.
0: Yeah, they said you could have it naked. (laughs) (laughs) That's the term. It's funny, when you order a scotch, you can have it what's called neat, which means without water or ice. Yeah. And then in the same trip, I saw on the menu there were options for the burger, and they said it was a locally produced you know, meat. This was in Scotland. I just came back from COP. One of the options was to have it naked. And I'd never seen that before without the bun. And so that is funny. I don't know what the motivation was for that. Were they thinking ecology? Were they thinking health? I don't know. But it was interesting to see that on the menu. And that's something we need to think about. You know, just having burgers without a bun. We don't need the bun. We don't need the french fries. We don't need the value meal, the super value meal with the strawberry shake, (laughs) right? And those are the deleterious sides of the diet. Of course, that's where all the profit is, right? McDonald's isn't making profit on the meat. They're making profit on all the other crap. And it's all that other crap, which is the problem. So this is the profound transformation that we have to have. And the irony is that when we get through this, it's actually probably going to be more red meat, not less. But there's going to be much less of all of the other ancillary grain-based products that we eat and that we
1: don't need. Yes. So you're talking about you discover this while you were in Europe for COP. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the UN Climate Change Conference?
0: What I discovered was just this idea of a restaurant serving a burger. I mean, it's phrased as a burger without a bun. Mm. It was actually on the menu as an option. But this idea of not having all the bread products that go with meat and other crappy things, that's sort of been fundamental to this all along. Yes.
1: Yeah, so you're talking about discovering this burger without a bun, which makes sense because a burger really refers to the patty. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the UN climate change conference.
0: Okay, sort of a couple of sides to that. I was part of the UN food system summit, which happened prior. Now, I don't know if you heard about that. I'm just curious. Had you heard about the food system summit? Somewhat. All right. So it obviously wasn't as well known as the climate conference, but it was a big deal in the foodie and ag world. And it was getting a lot of publicity now because of the interface between ag and food and climate, but there was something called the United Nations Food Systems Summit which really was going on for a year. You know, this was sort of in the middle of COVID. And so everyone was meeting online, but it did culminate at the United Nations General Assembly in September. And there were various groups. And I was part of that. And I was part of a group on sustainable livestock. Even the term itself, sustainable, I push back now against the word sustainable wherever you see it. In a food context, we need to be talking about regenerative all the time. Anyway, the committee that I was on was called sustainable livestock. I didn't come up with the title. That's what it was called. So there was also a soils committee, but it was really in the sustainable livestock space that I was able to contribute the most. And we produced a paper for that, which is now part of the proceedings of the UN Food Systems Summit. And, you know, I wanted to be presenting on that paper at at the climate conference. So I'm not an official delegate to the climate conference. I went just on my own. So I really was just an individual just representing myself and representing Soil for Climate by extension. But nonetheless, I was an author on this UN paper, and I was there to represent it. So that's sort of the involvement. And many of my colleagues were there and that type of thing. Now, the way these summits work is these are UN events that are put together by sort of the parties to the organization itself. So, So these are countries. So countries send delegates. I mean, that's the sort of the official nature of it. And then There are these recognized international nonprofit organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, the World Health Organization, that type of thing. So there's a handful of these internationally recognized non government organizations who can also send delegates. And that's sort of the inner core. But then there's sort of this outer core of all the other environmental groups in the world or climate groups or various lobby groups who also can show up and set up their pavilions and all that. So one of those groups, for example, is the New York Times. They had their own pavilion with their own programs running. And it was at a New York Times event that John Kerry was speaking. And that's where I was able to ask him that question. So the short answer is that I was really just going as an individual. But I was also going to represent the proceedings of this paper that I contributed to, which was part of the UN Food Systems Fund.
1: From attending the UN conference, did it give you more of an idea of how Accepted regenerative agriculture is in the overall community in terms of environment and climate change?
0: As part of the Food Systems Summit, yes, regenerative agriculture was a major component of it. But in the climate space, it's really almost non existent. And this is a major problem, but it really is almost non existent. And you saw, you know, when I asked Secretary Kerry about soil, he immediately began to answer by referring to agriculture. And I'm sort of airing, he's not a visual. But if I were, you'd see me putting quotes around agriculture and then referring to that group called Aim for Climate, Agriculture Innovation, Mission for Climate. But that's entirely high tech, high finance, Bill Gates, big corporate players around agriculture. And it's really these days around technology and genetic engineering, what they call precision agriculture, precise controls of irrigation and fertilizer and making seeds making plants that can grow and practically sawdust because there's no soil left anymore. So this is their quote unquote, their innovation, right? Agriculture innovation mission for climate has nothing to do with restoring soil or cover crops or crop rotations or regenerative grazing. There's none of that at all. And, you know, I say none, not none in the absolute sense, but for all practical purposes, there's none. And so this is the real problem. Regenerative agriculture, is not acknowledged in any of the official sense of these climate proceedings. And that's a real problem. Now, remember, I told you there are these various tiers or layers. There's the inner tier, technically called the blue zone, which is where the official delegates go. Then there's this green zone sort of exterior where other NGOs and public people can go. And in that space, yes there are good groups representing soil and I'm glad they're there and the people are seeing it, you know, and maybe someday soil for climate will be big enough to have our own pavilion there, you know, and run our own program. And I'm hoping that next year, okay, well, let me tell you about my vision for next year. All right. You're going to like this. All right. So this climate conference, it's called COP. And COP stands for conference of Parties, and it's conference of parties to what? Well, it's conference of parties the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. Okay, this is all UN speak, But anyway, they call this COP26. It means this is the 26th time that this conference of parties has happened. And every year it's in a different year and every year it has a different number. So for example, what we call the Paris Climate Accord, that happened to be COP21, all right? It just happened to be in Paris. So anyway, next year it's COP27 and it's going to be in Egypt. Well, I think this is a perfect opportunity for the entire theme of the COP to be the re-greening of the Sahara. Mm I
1: love it. You're right.
0: Let's just say the re-greening of North Africa, including the Sahel. Most people don't even know the difference between the Sahara and the Sahel, whatever. Let's just say the re-greening of the Sahara. That's the desert that most people know. And that should just be the whole theme of COP27. And of course, it's possible. Other than a few Parts of the Sahara where there's really like literally no rain. You know, the Sahara used to be a healthy grassland, and most deserts in the world used to be healthy grassland. You know, as Alan Savory says, we've been creating desertification for tens of thousands of years, even long before agriculture. Desertification begins with the killing of the megafauna and the use of fire, the intentional use of fire. Those are the roots of desertification. And, you know, there's cave paintings now in the Sahara of large animals, and water. It was a healthy savanna. Basically, North Africa was a healthy savanna. And then, you know, the Greek and Roman empires, I mean, that was their breadbasket. You know, they converted all of the most northern part of Africa. It, it was basically their Midwest. I mean, they were doing what we're doing now in the Midwest 2,000 years ago. Two 3,000 years ago, they had huge grain fields, and they were dipping grains across the Mediterranean. So humans have been creating deserts for a long time, and it would be really cool if the whole focus of COP27 were greening the Sahara. And that's what I'm going to work in. You're hearing it now for the first time in this podcast. But as soon as I realized that next year's COP was going to be in Egypt, then I knew that needs to be the focus of the whole thing. I have.
1: I'm hoping that it can be. Do you think that while regenerative agriculture is not noticed in the overall environmental world, it is gaining some traction and let's say in 10 years, it'll be a much bigger thing?
0: Well, you know, I mean, it has to be the main thing. It does. I mean, regenerative agriculture needs to be the
1: main topic.
0: And, you know, the thing is that I sort of feel like the tech side is appropriate to deal with the emissions. Technology is appropriate to deal with the emissions problem. But regenerative agriculture doesn't need new technology. I mean, it helps better satellites, better handheld devices, whatever. You know, there will always be better technology, which there will always be a place for it. But it isn't better technology, which is fundamental to
1: regenerative agriculture. No, the fundamental part is the opposite.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just planning. Alan Savory would say, well, this is where holistic management comes in. Alan says agriculture will be regenerative when management is holistic. How about that? There's a nice little phrase. Agriculture will be regenerative when management is holistic. Mm-hmm. And by that, he means managing for society, ecology and economy. All together, that's what he means by holistic, that you're simultaneously dealing with the complexities of society, ecology, and economy. Those are the things we manage as opposed to the things which we quote-unquote produce. So, you know, it could be a good opportunity for COP27, cop 20 could be a good opportunity for this holistic management. And there could be demonstrations for that, or trainings, or exercises. Say, okay, well, you know, let's say we're managing for the Sahara, for greening the Sahara. What's it going to take to do that? I mean, I'm just thinking about it right now as we're talking. The heads of states of all the countries which have some elements of the Sahara in them, the various agricultural societies, the, the citizens, the farmers. You know, imagine if they're all together having this conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that'd be wonderful. That'd be
0: profound. But, you know, Alan would make the point that's really the only way it's going to happen.
1: A UN
0: organization or an agricultural organization or A technology organization is not going to green the Sahara. The Sahara will green when all of the players are working together simultaneously trying to deal with the economies, the ecology and the environment and the social issues all together. And it can be done. I'm hopeful that that can happen.
1: It can be done. I'm hopeful too. I wouldn't be doing this show and I imagine you wouldn't have so for climate if it didn't so... That's why we both do our thing as well as all these other organizations do it to encourage people and I am optimistic that more people are learning about this and this will be the way of agriculture and of fighting climate change in the future. We're just about out of time, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can find more information about Soil for Climate online.
0: Our main hub has become the Facebook group, the Soil for Climate Facebook group. That's just sort of what happened. You know, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter, but really the Facebook group is kind of where to go to be part of the community. We've got about 24,000 plus members now in the Facebook group. So it's a pretty robust group. And there are various regional groups. There's a London, a Colorado But anyway, go to the main Soul Climate Facebook group to really dig in and meet people. And if you really don't want to be on Facebook, and I don't blame you, find me on LinkedIn.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on this program. It's a pleasure to have you here.
0: Okay. Aaron, thanks for doing what you're doing. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this.
1: That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. Next week, I interview Scott Lively, founder of Raise American and author of For the Love of Beef. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time. My pantry is officially closed.